It's time to think about the Bible like you never have before. This is Christian Questions. After this episode, go to ChristianQuestions.com to check out other episodes, Bible study resources, videos, download the CQ app, and more. Today's topic is, when Jesus prayed, thy kingdom come, what did he mean? Coming up in this episode, Christians always say that God is love and they couldn't be more right. The problem is, many of us have never connected how deep and wide that love is in relation to the world in general. Jesus had a clear purpose when he taught us to pray for God's kingdom to come. So what are we missing? Here's Rick and Jonathan. Welcome everyone, I'm Rick. I'm joined joined by Jonathan, my co-host for 25 years. Jonathan, what's our theme scripture for this episode? Isaiah 11:9. They will not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth will be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. The Lord's Prayer in Matthew chapter 6 is perhaps the most commonly quoted teaching of Jesus. This prayer is simple and pointed in its focus. Our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. This beginning teaches us to not only acknowledge God as Father, but to hallow, to reverence his very name. The next phrase is also simple, perhaps too simple. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done in earth as it is in heaven. Now, many take this as a two-part statement first hoping for God's kingdom, and then hoping for God's will to be done on earth. But is it two parts? Is this a petition for hope for two different things, or is it a petition for one glorious and often forgotten part of God's plan, his kingdom on earth? Well, the entire Bible shouts out a resounding answer to this question. And Jonathan, just before we get started uh, today, wanted to take a moment this is Christian Questions' 25th anniversary today, June 12th. So, happy anniversary, brother. <laughs> hey, you too. The Lord is good. And just wanted to touch very, very briefly on the beginnings. And there's a, there's a lot of story here, but Jonathan, I know you remember when you and I were sitting in the manager's uh, office at WSUB 25 years and a few weeks ago. And yes. we were talking to him about the idea for Christian Questions. And what we said to him was, we want to let everybody know that the Bible has hope for every man, woman, and child, and everybody deserves hope. Phil's response to that was, great, let's see what you've got. And now, 25 years later, here we are, still preaching the exact same hope. And today's episode is exactly built on what that initial idea was all about, thy kingdom come. And it's been a privilege, brother. It has, beyond anything I have ever, ever experienced. Last week, we saw that the kingdom of God can be a confusing thing as we touched on some of the words of Jesus regarding it. Jesus taught that the kingdom was among them when he walked the earth. Here is what he said when John the Baptist was imprisoned, Matthew four seventeen. From that time, Jesus began to preach and say, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. As we open up details regarding God's kingdom, we need to understand there are two main phases to its unfolding. The fact that Jesus talked about it being at hand gave you the idea that, well, here it is. But there's much more to it. The first phase 
is happening in this age of the gospel. And that's what Jesus proclaimed when John the Baptist was in prison. Jesus proclaimed the kingdom was at hand, and he spoke many parables explaining a present phase of that kingdom. In the words of Jesus, the phrase kingdom of God and kingdom of heaven are often heard in the gospels. You hear those two phrases, kingdom of God and kingdom of heaven, frequently. These phrases are actually interchangeable. How do we know that? Well, we know that because in Matthew 13, 31, in Luke 13, 18 to 19, the same parable is being introduced. One uses one phrase and the other uses the other. Matthew first. He presented another parable to them saying, the kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed, which a man took and sowed in his field. From Luke now. So he was saying, what is the kingdom of God like? And to what shall I compare it? It is like a mustard seed, which a man took and threw into his own garden. It's important to look at the same parable in the different gospels to understand more fully. We see this wonderful connection between the kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of God. This really shows the big picture of God's kingdom. It does. And that's what we really want to focus on today is the big picture, not pieces, but the big picture. The parables in which Jesus spoke of the kingdom, kingdom of heaven, kingdom of God, were all lessons about the context in which the true church, those who are part of this first phase of the kingdom, and we'll explain that as we go, in which those, the true church, would be developed here and now. So what we're suggesting is this first phase, it's a way to understand how the kingdom develops, and it's focused on the followers of Christ. Jesus also taught us that the kingdom held stations of honor for his faithful followers. We know that in, from Matthew chapter 18, verses 2 to 4. And he called a child to himself and set him before them and said, Truly I say to you, unless you are converted and become like children, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever then humbles himself as this child, he is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. We have to become like children. I was thinking of childlike qualities such as teachable, resilient, forgiving, full of energy, being in awe of everything around you, just to name a few. And on top of all that, it's the willingness to be taught, the willingness to be guided, the willingness to see that which is good and trust in he who guides you. And so you've got this childlike enthusiasm that, that is really, you're right, is really important for true followers of Christ. Rick, how does this verse show stations of honor? Well, it says Jesus is, is talking and he's got a child in front of him. And he says, whoever humbles, him, humbles himself as his child, he's the greatest in the kingdom. And what it tells us is that there is, there are levels of greatness, apparently. And if you really are humble, more humble and the more willing to follow Jesus' footsteps, the higher the station. There is lots of work to be done in the kingdom by the true followers of Christ. We'll unfold that as we go. So there's different levels that we want to look at and say, wow, there's a whole lot more to this than we might think. So let's continue. Jesus also taught that the kingdom was still coming. He, now, he just said it's at hand. He said that, you know, this is how you develop yourself. But in Luke 22, 17, 18, he's talking about the kingdom coming. And when he had taken a cup and given thanks, he said, Take this and share it among yourselves. For I say to you, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine from now on until the kingdom of God comes. This is the night before Jesus is crucified. And he is sharing that memorial 
of his death with his truest followers. And he's saying, I'll pick this up. I'll pick up this solemnity with you once the kingdom comes. So obviously when he said the kingdom is at hand, and now he says the kingdom comes, you know that there's different parts to this. And we just need to understand and wrap our heads around the depth of what Jesus is saying. And we're just introducing at this point. Uh, and, you know, this, uh, this idea that the kingdom is coming, it's this aspect of the kingdom that Jesus told us to pray for. And Matthew chapter 6, verses 9 and 10, these are verses that we all know. Pray then in this way, Our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. In this verse, it teaches us to dwell on reverence for God and his future kingdom on earth. Reverence for God and the future kingdom. Those are the first two things, the first two important pieces in this prayer. Lord, teach us to pray. Here's what you do. You revere the name of God and you pray for his kingdom. There's incredible power in this. We need to not minimize the idea of thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So logically, the first phase of this kingdom was all about those who would be in heaven. We, we got that from the previous Luke scripture. Jesus introduces the second phase of the kingdom by telling us to always think about it and pray for it. It's something to look forward to. Thy kingdom come. It's an important aspect of how this works. The Bible tells us that God's kingdom has a present developmental phase which is focused on establishing the establishment of the true church, the body of Christ. Now make no mistake, when we talk about the true church, we're not talking about some building, some denomination. We're talking about the body of Christ, the individual followers of Christ. These are developed not only to be with Jesus, because everybody looks forward to that as Christians, you want to be with Jesus. Not only to be with Jesus, but to work with him for the purpose of worldwide reconciliation. And there's a whole lot more to come on that reconciliation that we'll talk about in a few minutes. Jesus is the way that all of this is possible, and the true church is privileged to work beside him. Colossians 1, 18 through 20. He is also head of the body, the church, and he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he himself will come to have first place in everything. For it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in him, and through him to reconcile all things to himself, having made peace through the blood of his cross. Through him, I say, whether things on earth or things in heaven. Look at the connection to the body members. When Jesus is elevated, so is his body. You can't separate the two. The faithful church members are called to help reconcile all things to God by helping to bless the world in the future. And, and Jonathan, you know, when, when you read that verse, it's like, I don't know, I'm, I get a little dramatic sometimes, but it's like it's shouting, you know, verse 20, and through him to reconcile all things to himself. It's not to reconcile just the few who are called. It's not to reconcile just this or that. It says all things to himself having made peace through the blood of his cross. So the peace gives the opportunity for the reconciliation. It satisfied justice and opened the way so reconciliation could happen. And just like you said, the church, the true church, the body of Christ is right there with him. Going to heaven is not sitting on some harp. 
sitting on some cloud playing some harp. Okay, no, it's not. <laughs> it is working with Jesus in this reconciliation. And again, we're, we're going to expand this as we go. So let, let's continue a little further. Not only is it working alongside of him, working with him as the body of Christ, like you mentioned, but the true church, those individual disciples of Jesus, will be able to reign with him as well. Let's take a look at Revelation chapter 5, verses 9 to 10. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the book and to break its seals, for you were slain and purchased for God with your blood men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to our God. They will reign upon the earth. We are told we will reign with Jesus from heaven as kings and priests, spiritual guides. It's hard to wrap your head around that. We are being developed for this all-important work right now. Let's read Revelation 3, 21 and 22. He who overcomes, I will grant to him to sit down with me on my throne, as I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. There is such immense promise here in those two Revelation verses. Now, we know that Revelation is highly symbolic, and we understand that, but the idea of being kings and priests is verified through other scriptures as well. So you've got this very, very significant privilege that's happening because of the call of the true church. That shows us that they are put in place to do a work for others. That's why we're talking about the kingdom in two phases. We're, we're using that, that description a little bit loosely just to help us understand that the first part is preparing those who are going to help with the second part. I guess that's maybe the easiest way to take a look at this. So let's look at connecting key kingdom pieces. God's kingdom is an absolute centerpiece of his plan for his creation. Thus far, we can see that its clear development began when Jesus came, for he was and is the central reason for the kingdom being a reality. The first phase of this kingdom is a developmental. It began with Jesus and develops through the spiritual faithfulness of his truest followers. So as with so many things in the plan of God, there's this developmental stage that comes first. Something has to start somewhere. And God, you know, sometimes there's a, there's a big dramatic thing, but usually with God's plan, it unfolds in small little pieces. Sometimes that you can't even recognize. And the development of God's kingdom really does follow that pattern. So seeing the amazing promises given to the true church in, in this age are just a mere glimpse of what God's kingdom is bringing. So, the kingdom of God comes through the true church. Who does it come to, and how does this happen? As with many biblical truths, God's kingdom does not look like it's following a straight and clearly defined pathway. The developmental phase has already taken about 2,000 years, and it's not yet over. It's like, hello, what's happening here? Can you speed it up? That's, that's kind of how you, you feel. Our next step is to understand how this phase ends and what happens to trigger the next phase into reality. So 
with God's plan, Jonathan, there's usually, when you look at how it works through the ages, there's a, there's a, there's a working through something and a slow ending and a new beginning that usually kind of happen at the same time. And when we look at how God's plan works, we, we look at that as, as like a harvest time where things are winding down so something else can begin. How does the first phase end and the second phase of the kingdom start? What is presently in place must be removed. This has been prophesied in the Bible for thousands of years. Daniel 12, 1 through 4, starting with verse 1. Now at that time, Michael, the great prince who stands guard over the sons of your people, will arise, and there will be a time of distress such as never occurred since there was a nation until that time. And at that time, your people, everyone who is found written in the book, will be rescued. The name Michael means who as God. It is fitting for his son Jesus to be the one who represents God. This great time of trouble will be a transition period to bring in the second stage of the kingdom. Now verses 2 through 4. Many of those who sleep in the dust of the ground will awake, those to everlasting life, but the others to disgrace and everlasting contempt. Those who have insight will shine brightly like the brightness of the expanse of heaven and those who lead the many to righteousness, like the stars forever and ever. But as for you, Daniel, conceal these words and seal up the book until the end of time. Many will go back and forth, and knowledge will increase. Oh, there's so much in these verses in Daniel, and they are worth a two-part series, just verses two through four here. But just very quickly, Jonathan, you have the sense of, first of all, trouble. Big trouble trouble that has never been seen before. That precedes resurrection and judgment. And what that brings in these verses is this idea of righteousness and teaching. And you have all of these pieces that are very, very subtly hidden in this prophecy. And then, and then Daniel writes, as for you, Daniel, because this is what he's being told, conceal these words, seal up the book until, until it's time. We live in the end times, and the beginning of understanding of this can now begin to come clear. And Jonathan, this is what we have been taught. We've been taught to put the scriptures in their appropriate context, and Daniel provides us a lot in relation to understanding the times and seasons of God's plan. Now, Jesus repeated this prophecy within the context of revealing some details of his return. In Matthew chapter 24, let's look at verses 21 and 22. For then there will be a great tribulation such as not occurred since the beginning of the world until now, nor ever will. Unless those days had been cut short, no life would have been saved. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. So man's, man's schemes will end. Thank God. Yeah, yeah. well, and, 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 and Jesus picks up with what Daniel said. So you see Daniel, it's a little bit cryptic. Jesus brings it back and he says, by the way, this happens at the time of my return. So he adds this sense. And, you know, you talked about it in, in uh, Daniel uh, chapter 12, verse 1, Michael standing up, that is representative of Jesus. Jesus picks up on that and he makes it a little bit more clear. And he's saying, this is going to be difficult it's a hard time. Why are we bringing this up when we're talking about the beauty of God's kingdom? Because you have to remove that which was so you can put in place that which will be. The purpose of this time of trouble is to end the present mess 
that humanity has created under Satan, who is the God of this world, and it will be replaced with God's everlasting rule. How do we know that? Well, Daniel again told us in a different context, Daniel chapter 2, verse 44. In the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom which will never be destroyed, and that kingdom will not be left for another people. It will crush and put an end to all these kingdoms, but it will itself endure forever. A demolition work must take place first so that the new rebuild will last eternally. And sometimes we don't like the demolition part because it's comfortable, it's it's common, it's familiar, and it's like, oh, do we have to go through all of that trouble? Well, you can't build an eternal structure on something that's sinful. It just doesn't work. It just won't work by definition. And that's why we need to see that in the times of those kings, this kingdom will be set up. On a side note, we as Christians should never promote violence even while this destruction process takes place, that's not Christ-like. Yeah, it, it's not our job to get out there and, and, and provoke the, the, the end like that. Absolutely no. not. We are to do what Jesus did. We are to speak the words of the gospel in the same attitude that Jesus spoke the words of the gospel. So this is a hard time, but this is the introduction to this other phase of the kingdom. So this removal, this demolition work that you just talked about, will by no means be a very happy event. Another scripture that really brings that out, and this is very dramatic, Zephaniah chapter 3, verse 8. Therefore, wait for me, declares the Lord, for the day when I rise up as a witness. Indeed, my decision is to gather nations, to assemble kingdoms, to pour out on them my indignation, all my burning anger, for all the earth will be devoured by the fire of my zeal. Because we know God's kingdom comes on earth, we know that devoured by fire, in this verse, has to be symbolic. And that's such an important thing because it's so easy to read a verse like this and pause there and say, see, the world gets burned up. Actually, no. If we left it like this, there would be no sense. Thy kingdom come. Wait, you just burned up the earth. How can you possibly have the kingdom come on earth? So Zephaniah, fortunately, continues building the same prophetic picture that Daniel built in the very next verse. Now remember, the last words of verse 8 were, the earth will be devoured by the fire of my zeal. So Jonathan, what's Zephaniah 3, 9? For then I will give to the people's purified lips that all of them may call on the name of the Lord to serve him shoulder to shoulder. Hope for all is promised. There's nobody missing, brother. <laughs> and that's the thing. Everybody is included. That's such an important little detail that all of them may call upon the name of the Lord. All of who? The ones he assembled to show his indignation to. So you, you realize that this is something that most of us in our Christianity don't ever think about, but it's prophetically present, and we need to put it in context of God's kingdom. So we see this first phase of God's kingdom ending with the destruction of present systems, while the second phase brings new life. One is ending, one is beginning. There's that overlap process. Now, the second phase cannot be made more obvious than in what Jesus described 
in John chapter 5. And, and Jonathan, I got to tell you that, and you know this, this group of verses is some of my favorite verses because it just shows us the power and value of Jesus and his ransom. John 5, uh, 28 to 29, let's do tw- uh, 25 to 29. Let's do 25 and 26 to start. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and now is when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For just as the Father has life in himself, even so he gave to the Son also to have life in himself. Life in himself was rewarded to Jesus because of his faithful sacrifice. We know that reward is called glory, honor, and immortality. It was a wonderful gift from God to Jesus. It's something that he didn't have and God gave to him. Now, the power that comes with this is necessary to bring resurrection. Hang on to that thought. We'll get to it in another verse. Let's read John 5, 27. And he gave him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. This is important also because, you know, judgment is a big deal, and we all make judgments. And sometimes our judgments are have righteousness in them, sometimes they don't. Most of the time, with imperfect humanity, judgments aren't very righteous at all. The power that God gives to Jesus in this glorified state is to pass judgment, and it is glorious, godly, righteous, perfect, wise judgment. We need to see it for what it is. Jesus is showing us that his eternal faithfulness to God and God's will resulted in not only life-giving power, but the authority to execute this kind of judgment as well. Jesus next, in John 5, shows us the results of this action, of this incredible judgment, John 5, 28 and 29. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming in which all who are in their tombs will hear his voice and will come forth. Those who did the good deeds to a resurrection of life, those who committed the evil deeds to a resurrection of judgment. Raising up of all humanity to life on earth will be a miracle of undisputed power, glory, and drama. And Jonathan, I can't think of anything more dramatic than hearing the voice of the Son of Man, of Jesus, and coming forth from the grave. Wow, what a miracle. What an inspiration that will bring to everyone. And he gave us a small sample when he called Lazarus from the grave. And all these people are watching, and he says, Lazarus, come forth. It's going to be very, I don't know how it's going to work, but it's going to be something that gives you the drama that Jesus calls them, and he who was dead is now alive. How much more? You look at that and say, praise God through Christ. I mean, there Mm -hmm. you have it. As beautiful as all of this is, you know, these are the words of Jesus. Well, he was not the only voice regarding this this, this awe-inspiring system of events. Let's look at one other example from the Apostle Paul. Actually, last week in, in our uh, discussion on Christ versus Christianity, we touched on, on these verses. We're going to expand it a little bit more uh, today. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 20 through 26, and then verse 28. And we'll, we'll pause a couple of times as we go. But now Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who are asleep. For since by a man came death, By a man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive, but each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits. This shows us the first phase of the kingdom. Man brings death, 
man brings resurrection from the dead. That's what Jesus was saying in John 5, 28 and 29. We see that this is the beginning. You put the, 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 the right people in place, Christ and the first fruits, they're in place for the next part of this. And so what, what is that? Let's continue the verse. After that, those who are Christ at his coming, then comes the end when he hands over the kingdom to God and Father, when he has abolished all rule and all authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy that will be abolished is death. This shows us the second phase, destruction of present systems, resurrection of all, and Jesus' ransom in full authority. So you see a result of by death came man, by death also comes a resurrection from the dead because the price was paid. Jesus paid the price, he called the faithful ones, and now you see all coming to life, and you see that Jesus reigns, and he puts aside all other authority. Nothing stands before him, because he is acting as the absolute representative of God Almighty, period, end of statement, and he reigns until the very last enemy is put away, and what is that? Death, and that means no more. It's done forever. Verse uh, 28. When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself also will be subjected to the one who subjected all things to him, so that God may be all in all. God rules supremely over his human family on earth, as well as his spiritual family, just as he had planned it to be. Rick, I love the submission of Jesus to his Father. Once all things are reconciled and perfect, Jesus presents his finished work to his father. And you think about the, the, the idea of the father is the, is the grand designer and Jesus is the workman. And you, know, you, you, you think about building this beautiful home or this whatever it is and, and, and the workman goes and does all of the work and cleans up and you know, demolishes that which was there, builds that perfect structure and then he hands over the keys. Once it's clean, once it's pristine, once it's exactly according to specs and say, here's your home. And that's really what this is. Jesus turning over the mankind to the rule of God the Father for all of eternity. I mean, how you don't get better than this. You just don't. So, Jonathan, again, connecting key kingdom pieces. God's plan is comprehensive. His allowance of Sid was with the foresight of knowing that redemptive work of Jesus was waiting in the wings. Jesus boldly proclaimed his well-deserved power to bring God's plan to fruition, but not without warning of the many steps needed. Resurrection will bring judgment. And that's an important factor. None of this happens quickly. None of this happens arbitrarily. It all happens in the context of the mind of God and the plan of God working exactly the way he desires it to go. God's kingdom will bring faithfulness now for the few and life opportunity later for the vast numbers of humanity who have ever lived. So, the worldwide result of God's kingdom is a new lease on life for all. How will that work? What will be required of them? To hear about worldwide salvation without hearing the answer to this question, what will be required of them, easily brings people to conclude something like, great, Jesus is going to raise everybody. It doesn't matter then what I do. I can do whatever I want and not worry about it. Well, as we shall see, 
Nothing is further from the truth. The world will be raised to a day of judgment. Now that needs to be clearly defined because too many of our Christian friends take that and they make it a harsh, angry time. The day of judgment is not that at all. Once the present systems are removed, then the world will see the evidence of resurrection. Let's reread John 5, 28 and 29. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming in which all who are in their tombs will hear his voice and will come forth. Those who did the good deeds to a resurrection of life, those raised spiritual, and those who committed the evil deeds to a resurrection of judgment, those raised on earth. The word for judgment means decision, a trial or contest. So when you look at the idea of judgment, it's not a stamp of approval or disapproval. It's a period of time. It's a trial. It's a decision-making process. It's not a final decision. It is the process of decision. We need to see that for what it really is. This, this resurrection of judgment for the masses of humanity will be in the context of full disclosure. And folks, really hone in on these next couple of scriptures because they help us understand very plainly what, what this day of judgment actually is and, and how it works. Jonathan, let's go to 1 Timothy 2, 3-6. to This is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all men to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. Knowledge is defined as full discernment and acknowledgement. This scripture tells us two things. First, God desires all to be saved. Second, he will have it in place for all to fully understand the truth. Remember, Satan blinded the minds of everyone. Think about that. Satan blinded the minds of everyone, and you can't hold people responsible if they've been blinded, right? Well, here it's saying that God will have all men to be saved and come to a full discernment of the truth. Every human being will have the ability and the capacity to understand fully God's truth. That's enormous when you think about judgment. Let's finish the verse, verses 5 and 6. For there is one God and one mediator also between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, the testimony given at the proper time. Rick, this verse is one of my favorites, proving Jesus died for all mankind. You know, I have a question, though. How can a person be rehabilitated if they aren't given knowledge to make improvements? And that's exactly the reason why this says they need knowledge, because rehabilitation is not fair unless full discernment and full disclosure is there. And it's not fair unless those executing the rehabilitation are doing so in a just, loving, and wise manner. Jonathan, in our present day, we are very bad at rehabilitation. Our prison systems are supposed to be places to rehabilitate. It's not just, say, you're, you're being punished, you sit in the corner and think about it. It's supposed to be, you need to be removed from, from society, but you should be re-educated how to enter back into society and not go down that same road. And we just are not good at it. And that's because we're imperfect. That's because the world around us doesn't have answers. It's got more questions than answers. Here, what we're seeing is the idea of rehabilitation because full, just, loving, caring, 
wide knowledge is made clear. Everyone will have the opportunity. They will know and they will be given the, the, the ability to live up to that which is righteous. That's why it's a day of reconciliation. Jesus' sacrifice truly does cover every man's sins. First John chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. We have an advocate with the Father. We have someone who sits by our side and takes our position because we've been called, we've been given God's Spirit, and that's the role that Jesus plays with us. It's a little different than the role that he plays with the rest of the world. Uh, as a matter of fact, verse 2 of 1 John chapter 2 explains not only our, our part with the advocate, but the other part with the world. And he himself is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for those of the whole world. The kingdom is not exclusive. It is inclusive. It's a process that takes people from ignorance to understanding and gives each one an opportunity to choose to accept that knowledge or not. We have free will. And not only does it give us opportunity, but it gives, because of the resurrection, it raises humanity with the capacity of mind to be able to make the right choices. There's nobody who's going to be handicapped mentally or physically in this kingdom. They're going to have the capacity to be able to stand on their own two feet because Jesus raised them. That's why it's, he's the propitiation. He's the satisfaction for the sins of the whole world. So this judgment day is very inclusive. It's very fair. It's very powerful. And it's very life-changing. And this judgment day applies equally to all who have ever lived. Let's look at Matthew chapter 11, verses 20 to 24. Let's take 20 to 22 to begin with. Then Jesus began to denounce the cities in which most of his miracles were done because they did not repent. Woe to you, Cherizin! Woe to you, Bethsaida! For if the miracles had occurred in Tyre and Sidon, which occurred in you, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. Nevertheless, I say to you, it will be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon in the day of judgment than for you. Jesus is speaking some pretty powerful words. He's talking to, uh, about cities that he has preached in. They've heard his words, and he's comparing them with Tyre and Sidon. These were cities that had been destroyed. So who were these, or what were these cities of Tyre and Sidon? Jonathan, let's go to a, a, a commentary by Matthew Poole. Tyre and Sidon were habitations of heathens. Their country joined to Galilee. They were places of great traffic, inhabited with Canaanitish idolaters, and exceedingly wicked. So you have this wickedness that in the prophet Isaiah and Ezekiel and Amos, these people are talked about for their wickedness. And Jesus is using these ancient examples of paganism, saying, they'll have a better chance in the Day of Judgment than you, because they didn't hear my words, essentially. But he doesn't stop there. He goes further. We're in Matthew 11. Let's go to verses uh, 23 and 24. And you, Capernaum, will not be exalted to heaven, will you? You will descend to Hades. For if the miracles had occurred in Sodom, which occurred in you, it would have remained to this day. Nevertheless, I say to you that it'll be more tolerable for the land of Sodom in the day of judgment than for you. Better for Sodom and Gomorrah 
even they can be rehabilitated? We all remember how sinful those cities were. God sent down fire and brimstone to destroy them. And yet they are raised. How do we know? Because Jesus is saying that they will have a better time because they will have learned a tremendous, tremendous lesson of the consequences of evil. This shows us the equality of justice in the day of judgment for everyone who has ever lived, no matter what age, no matter what social system they came from, no matter what country, no matter what religion, no matter what lack of religion, all are included here. Judgment day will be based fully upon one's actions. It's going to be based on what people have done with their past actions, very, very carefully considered, but not primary because it's what you do with what you've done that we will see makes the difference. Jeremiah chapter 31, verses 27 to 30. Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will sow the house of Israel and the house of Judah with the seed of man and with the seed of beasts, as I have watched over them to pluck up, to break down, to overthrow, to destroy and to bring disaster, past actions. So I will watch over them to build and to plant present day of judgment actions declares the Lord. So you can see that in this prophecy, you've got the past, and this is, you know, fast forwarding to the day of judgment, what people had done in the past with where they are then in the day of judgment. Then it helps us understand how it works. Verses 29 and 30. In those days, they will not say again, the fathers have eaten sour grapes and the children's teeth are set on edge, but everyone will die for his own iniquity. Each man who eats the sour grapes, his teeth will be set on edge. No longer can one say, I did wrong because that's all I knew. That may have been true, but not anymore. What are they going to do now with the information they've learned? It's their choice. There's no more excuses. They will be given everything they need to make the right choices. And th this is such a powerful principle about no longer can you blame something else for what you did because you are now personally responsible. And it reminds me very quickly of Alcoholics Anonymous. They're a wonderful, wonderful organization that helps people to actually reconcile their present with their past, reconcile the fact that they're powerless with the addiction that they face, and it shows them how to understand their powerlessness and how to find a new way to look at life. That's a, that's a wonderful, very small microcosm of what we're talking about, about the opportunity to grow above and beyond the sinfulness of this world. Judgment Day has its consequences, though. What if somebody doesn't want pure choice in that life? What if they don't want to comply? What if they refuse love and righteousness and mercy? Well, Acts chapter 3, verses 19 to 23, give us a very, very clear, straightforward answer. Therefore, repent and return so that your sins may be wiped away, in order that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that he may send Jesus, the Christ, appointed for you, whom heaven must receive until the period of restoration of all things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from ancient time. Rick, when the verse said the restoration of all things, what does that encompass? When you think about it, that's a, that's a broad statement. And you think about how God created the earth and he created it to be inhabited, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and, and subdue it. That's what was originally put in place. And that's what will be restored, that perfect 
example, that perfect environment is what will be be brought together. Social orders they don't they don't they don't last because it's God's order that will last. So this restoration of all things is all things godly and originally put in place in this world. Now, verses uh, 22 and 23 describe what happens when somebody does not follow through on the righteousness that they're given. Moses said, The Lord will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brethren. To him you shall give heed to everything he says to you. And it will be that every soul that does not heed that prophet shall be utterly destroyed from among the people. To be utterly destroyed is to destroy out of its place, destroy utterly, to extirpate. And extirpate means to destroy completely, wipe out. So this is not some portent towards some kind of burning hell. This is actual the cessation of life. That's what would happen if someone who is resurrected by Jesus refuses the righteousness, refuses the education. And that's just because it's a choice that they make with full knowledge, with full understanding, with full moral authority over their own lives, knowing all of the consequences of everything. There's a great, great justice and wisdom in all of this. In Daniel chapter 7, he's just described the fourth beast, and, and the prophecy adds details as to how the second phase of the kingdom of God works. Uh, John, uh, Jonathan, let's go to Daniel seven twenty-seven. Then the sovereignty, the dominion, and the greatness of all the kingdoms under the whole heaven will be given to the people of the saints of the highest one. His kingdom will be an everlasting kingdom, and all the dominions will serve and obey him. From heaven... Christ and his church will reign and judge over the earth. There will be an order. There will be a society that is God's society through Christ and those faithful disciples who are in this first phase of the kingdom right now. And it will be permanent, and it will be glorious, and it will be honorable, and it will be wonderful. But you have to have the judgment to help people rise up to being able to deserve that kind of life. And that judgment doesn't hurt them, it helps them. Connecting key kingdom pieces, what do we have? God's plan is fair. True justice is built upon a system that has clearly stated laws and guidelines that treats each and every person with the same standards of pure and righteous judgment. This standard will be possible because of Jesus' own eternal loyalty to God's ways, as well as the learned and perfected loyalty of his then-to-be-glorified true disciples. It always comes down to loyalty to God and God only. Always, without exception. The world needs justice. True, righteous, godly justice. There is no better way to have it function than for it to be in the hands of Jesus. With justice having been fulfilled, what does the Bible next tell us of the conditions of the newly resurrected world? As amazing as God's plan and kingdom have looked thus far, what we have seen only holds a candle to what follows. This is like all an introduction. God's plan is built upon his justice, 
his wisdom, his power, and his love. And all of the newly resurrected and obedient world will fully experience all of God's attributes. Notice it doesn't say, you know, his attribute of, of anger. That's not one of God's attributes. It's a tool. It's not something that is part of his character, justice, wisdom, power, and love. That's what God is built upon. So as we expand this, Jonathan, we just want to touch on one quick important detail. We, we, we talk about following Christ and, you know, going to heaven. Well, what about those Old Testament heroes who didn't go to heaven, but they were very, very faithful? Those Old Testament ancient faithful ones will be very specially acknowledged in all of this. Matthew 11, 11, uh, and, and then we'll go on to another scripture in Hebrews. Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has not arisen anyone greater than John the Baptist. Yet, the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. These faithful prophets and servants are clearly not part of the kingdom's first phase, but are earthly leaders, Hebrews 11, 39, and 40. And all these, having gained approval through their faith, did not receive what was promised, because God had provided something better for us, so that apart from us they would not be made perfect. Jesus and the church from heaven will resurrect these heroes of faith as leaders on the earth. They are listed in the 11th chapter of Hebrews. Abel, Enoch, Noah, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Sarah, Esau, Joseph, Moses, Joshua, Rahab, Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, David, Samuel, with all the other prophets. And this includes John the Baptist. It does. And, you know, there's probably other unnamed prophets we don't even know about who served God faithfully that will have special positions of honor because they proved themselves to be working toward righteousness even though they were imperfect. So let's look at this kingdom, this second phase in its full establishment. This, this kingdom uh, is, is the result of resurrection and judgment. Israel and Jerusalem. Israel, physical, literal Israel, physical, literal Jerusalem will be the source of earthly blessings. This is important because this is what the Bible teaches us. Isaiah 2, verse 3. And many peoples will come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us concerning his ways, and that we may walk in his paths. For the law will go forth from Zion, and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. It's a very specific, clear plan. Israel has been, always been, God's chosen people. They don't lose that, that privilege. They get that privilege and become the conduit through which blessings flow to the rest of humanity. What a wonderful blessing. Israel and Jerusalem play a key role in that fully established kingdom. Further, righteousness will rule while the earth blossoms and humanity is healed and learns God's ways. Isaiah 35, verses 8 through 10. A highway will be there, a roadway, and it will be called the highway of holiness. The unclean will not travel on it, but it will be for him who walks that way, and fools will not wander on it. No lion will be there, nor will any uh, vicious beast go up thereon. The, these will not be found there, but the redeemed will walk there, and the ransomed of the Lord will return and come with joyful shouting to Zion, with everlasting joy upon their heads. They will find gladness and joy, and sorrow and sighing will flee away. Can you imagine there is no fear of 
any kind? And that's such an important point because most of humanity lives in fear. We all have fears. And the idea that nothing will make them afraid is a big, big part of being able to learn righteousness. People are afraid to stand up for something higher because they're afraid of ridicule, they're afraid of consequences. Then, no, you won't have the ridicule, you won't have the consequences, you'll have the support for righteousness. And that's why it's described as a highway, because this is the way that everybody goes. It's God's way. It's such a powerful picture. And what this brings is peace and prosperity. And here's the interesting thing. It's the same kind of peace that is in the heavenly realm under the same God that is in heaven. Micah chapter 4, verses 3 to 4. And he will judge between many peoples and render decisions for mighty distant nations. Then they will hammer their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not lift up sword against nation, and never again will they train for war. Each of them will sit under his vine and under his fig tree, with no one to make them afraid, for the mouth of the Lord of hosts has spoken. The Prince of Peace will lead over the peaceable kingdom. What a powerful thought. The idea of beating swords into plowshares and spears into pruning hooks. In other words, implements of hurt will become implements of cultivation. That's what it means. The world, the earth will be cultivated and everything will be focused in on that because it's a time of peace and prosperity and there is no more war. You're right. It's an amazing, amazing picture. The context of our theme scripture, that was uh, Isaiah 11.9, reveals a very strong and righteous rule over a universally peaceful creation. So we're going to look at Isaiah chapter 11, verses 4 through 10. We're going to break it up into, into three different pieces. Let's start with 4 and 5. But with righteousness he will judge the poor, and decide with fairness for the afflicted on the earth. And he will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he will slay the wicked. Also, righteousness will be the belt about his loins, and faithfulness the belt about his waist. So you start off these verses showing you the power and strength and fortitude and clarity and focus and mission of Jesus. He is going to decide with fairness for all. There will be an absolute fairness. He will put darkness and sin and evil and bad judgments all in their place. He's girded with righteousness around his waist. I mean, that's what holds everything together. It's a beautiful, beautiful picture. Now, the next part of these verses in Isaiah 11 talk about a very unique look at how the earth and the animal kingdom will be. Isaiah chapter 11, verses 6 through 7. And the wolf will dwell with the lamb. And the leopard will lie down with the young goat, and the calf with the young lion, and the fatling together, and a little boy will lead them. Also the cow and the bear will graze, their young will lie down together, and the lion will eat straw like the ox, and the nursing child will play by the hole of the cobra, and the weaned child will put his hand on the viper's den. Nature will be in perfect harmony like it was in the beginning. And we don't know how that's going to work. We've never seen this. We've ne- what, what, what's described here is we've never seen. We have no idea, but God knows, because that was God's original creation and his original process. So it's fascinating to look at this and say, I can't wait to see how this part will work. 
then we've got kind of a conclusion, verses uh, 9 and 10. They will not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth will be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Then in that day the nations will resort to the root of Jesse, who will stand as a signal for the peoples, and his resting place will be glorious. What a glorious ending to mankind's past woes. It is. And when you, you see this comprehensiveness of what these verses say, it, it's talking about there will be no hurting or destroying in all of God's holy mountain and all of his holy government governing of, of this world because the world, it, the earth is going to be full of the knowledge of God. Now, that means it's everywhere. It, it's not here, but not there. It's everywhere. It will be full of the knowledge of God. There will be an unquestionable access to and understanding of God's ways. Let's look, look at Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 14. For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. This will happen because it came from God's mouthpieces, the prophets. Listen to Psalm 22, 27, and 28. All the ends of the earth will remember and return to the Lord, and all the families of the nations will worship before you. For the kingdom is the Lord's, and he rules over the nations. You know what's interesting, Jonathan, is you read Habakkuk 2.14, the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. And that's exactly what it said in Isaiah. You're it's right. like, are they copying from each other? No. This is God's prophecies being given to different prophets so we get the point. That's what it's doing. This repetition, God is showing us in the ancient Old Testament writings what the future is going to look like. There is nothing left out. This is a magnificent, magnificent plan that includes everyone and has every detail in order. You know, Jonathan, we, we have a hard time understanding this. We, we, we can't see this in the world in which we live. And this reminds me of a, of a very tiny, 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 tiny little experience I had several years ago. I don't even remember where I was going, but I got, I got on an airplane. I was flying from point A to point B, and it was a really stormy, windy, rainy, thunder day. It was just not a good day. And we're sitting on the, the tarmac getting ready to take off, and it's like, oh, this doesn't look good. So they take off, and the plane is rising, and it's bumpy. And, and the rain is pelting against the windows. And, you know, you're sitting, I don't know if you've ever been in an airplane where it's been, you know, a, a lot of turbulence. It's not a fun feeling. No, it's not. And we're getting up higher and higher and the turbulence is still there. And it's a bumpy ride. And you're going, man, this doesn't look good. This doesn't look good. And just rising and rising. And then you get into the clouds. And now you can't see anything. It's still bumpy. And you're in the clouds. And, you know, you're like, okay, now what? And then all of a sudden, you, you get through the clouds and then there's this glorious, unadulterated sunshine because you're above the storm. And the point of all of this is that God's plan is that glorious sunshine. We just get caught up in the storm, but it's there. It's coming. The clouds will soon dissipate and God's plan will become obvious and will break through the tumult and through the, the turbulence of our, our, our present day and end up in a place that is glorious, God's kingdom on earth. The reign of sin, with all of its chaos and tragedy, will end. Revelation 21.4. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and there will no longer be any death. There will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain, 
for the first things have passed away. That's a plain scriptural statement. Folks, the question is, do you believe it? Do you believe it? All of this is opportunity, uh, is the opportunity for every human who's ever lived to benefit every human who's ever lived to benefit from Jesus' sacrifice. Acts 17, verses 30 and 31. Therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now declaring to men that all people everywhere should repent, because he has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he has appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. Jesus is the reason for everything. No wonder God gave him a name above every name. Only he is worthy to execute God's kingdom and righteousness. And the, and, and the Apostle Paul in Acts 17 was very clear. He's fixed a day in which the world, the world will be judged in righteousness by that man, Christ Jesus, who's now at the right hand of the power of God. And we see this in our final scripture in Isaiah chapter 42, verses 1 through 4. Behold, my servant whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry out or raise his voice, nor make his voice heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break, and a dimly burning wick he will not extinguish. Let me pause there. What compassion will be shown, motivated by love, for every person that is going through this rehabilitation process? Oh, it's a tender mercy that God gives us through Jesus. Let's continue. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not be disheartened or crushed until he has established justice in the earth. And the coastlands will wait expectantly for his law. You're right. There's this tender, tender, loving care. And then there's justice. And here's the thing. The two of them work exactly, perfectly in harmony. Sometimes we see justice, and that's harsh. And, oh, you want tender, loving care, but that's not strong enough. No, this shows that Jesus puts both of those together and gives the world a, a place and a process to live that honors and glorifies God. Folks, when we pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is, it in, as it is in heaven, this is what we're talking about. Jonathan, finally, connecting key kingdom pieces. It is now gloriously obvious what Jesus meant when he instructed us to pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done in earth as it is in heaven. As we meditate upon these profound truths of humanity's future, we can only look up with praise, honor, and reverence, and gratitude for all, an all-knowing Heavenly Father and his faithful and loving Son, Jesus. Folks, this is the primary message of the Bible. The primary message is man sinned, God saw, Jesus came, he lived, he paid the price, he was raised, and that opened the door for this grand kingdom on earth. What this shows us is that God from the very beginning allowed sin so the kingdom could come, and through sin, the kingdom could be appreciated. We have Jesus in the center of all of this. That's what the gospel is. That's what the, behold, good news for all people. For unto you is born this day a Savior, not just of a few, but the Savior of all men. That's the message that we believe the Bible teaches. That's what Christian Questions has been about for 25 years. 
think about it. Folks, we love hearing from our listeners. We welcome your feedback, questions on this episode and other episodes at ChristianQuestions.com. Coming up in our next episode, does patience really matter? Talk to you next week. <laughs>